1: Hello and welcome to Must Have Seen TV, the podcast dedicated to the sitcoms of the 20th century from I Love Lucy to News Radio. And I am your host, Brett White. And this is a special bonus Pride Month episode in addition to doing the weekly, hey, I'm going to get together with a queer, awesome person and talk about an episode of gay sitcom history in addition to those episodes. That was a long description for it. (laughs) I'm going to try to do bonus episodes that highlight more specific things about queer trailblazers and people behind the scenes and also in front of the camera of these shows that I've talked about um, that you might not know were gay or queer or uh, anything other than the straight that we presume literally everyone (laughs) on these old shows to be. Um, But before we get into that, I have to god this is gonna be hey this is a loose episode uh we're in the quarantine era as i state every time it is a it's a loose time (laughs) and a lot of this is just my therapy to stay um sane so you're putting up with that and i hope that it is uh enjoyable but um very serious stuff is happening right now and uh, before we get into something that I hope is, I hope is uplifting, but it's actually also going to be pretty sad, um, at times. Uh, before we get to that, I was, I, we have to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and the demonstrations and, protests and you know what uh riots because riots lead to rights uh this is june it is pride month this is a celebration that was started because of the stonewall riots which you know (laughs) weren't the first queer riots uh but they were definitely the ones that the history books remember and it was uh, a loud one in new york city and it led to me uh being able to do this To be able to live out, uh, to be married to a man, and to be able to do content like this. And that riot led to that. Um, And it took a long time. And still aren't all the way there. And people of color, specifically black people, are going through that. (laughs) They've been going through that uh, for hundreds of years. And uh, we're at a breaking point. And it is terrifying. And so much of this podcast is me I love old television and I love the past and I recognize also and I think that comes across in the podcast that the past is problematic AF and rosy glasses are meant to be smashed and replaced with uh, actual clear glasses because if your glasses are rose colored you're not going to be able to see details properly oh that's where that metaphor comes from And this is an escape for me, but it shouldn't be so much of an escape from reality that we do not pause and take note of the nightmare that is going on right now that is caused by politicians that put party over country and also uh, police that are essentially (laughs) armored tanks uh, doing horrific uh, murders. (laughs) Like anyway, I don't like, I of course don't like don't like talking about this stuff. No one likes talking about it. It is things that we need to talk about, and it is also things that we need to address. So please consider uh, finding some way to support. Um, I would suggest to go to bailfunds.github.io and just look at the bail funds, because right now people are protesting and demonstrating truly... Archaic and ridiculous curfew laws that are meant just to curtail the rightful, justified anger that people feel towards what is going on right now in the world where black and brown people are killed for things as small as maybe having a $20 counterfeit bill. And that is a death sentence for some reason uh, through excessive use of force. And that has to stop. We have to be better than this. Um, We just have to be. So please look up bail funds. Uh, donate to getting people that are I'm going to say wrongfully arrested for peaceful protests for peaceful demonstrations, get them out of jail and get them back on the street because people like me, I'm an agoraphobe now I'm fully terrified of leaving my apartment because I've been in here for 77 days. If that is not evident by the frazzled state of my mental capacity right now, um, <laughs> I really hope I really hope I'm not a, uh, I don't know. I want people to like me. I don't care if this offends you. <laughs> Oh, it's rough. Everything's rough. And I hope my laughing is funny. Um, But it's terrifying. Uh, Just please uh, donate. Do something. uh, demonstrate if you can leave your apartments, if you can, please be safe, try to stay socially distant, try to wear masks, definitely wear masks, do the most you can, because we're also still in the pandemic right now and everything is really, really bad. And so I hope that that is a long rambling, probably foot and mouth way of, uh, urging people to take action in any way you can. Um, that is more than just a black tile on Instagram. Make sure you're also linking to, uh, Charities that need it and organizations that need it. And also not spamming the hashtag Black Lives Matter uh, hashtag because that's an actual resource people need. Hello. So welcome to uh, the actual episode. So. So far, we've talked to I've talked to um, Jim Colucci and Frank Decaro about the Golden Girls episode Sisters of the Bride, which I truly loved. I mean, Frank Decaro has been a publicly gay individual on my radar for what 20 years 23 years i mean like since the daily show um in terms of me growing up and seeing gay people on television he was one of them so to be able to talk to him and his husband jim who that golden girls book is such an inspiration to me and if you haven't read it and also get drag jim uh frank's book they're both so good and they're just such inspirations to me of like what i'm trying to do with this podcast i'm trying to keep stories alive i I had a, a breakdown moment earlier today, uh, where I, it's that thing where it feels like you're crying, but no water's coming out, but you're still having all the emotions, but you're not having like the uh, dramatic payoff of like tears. I had that one of those where I was just like, why am I alive at this moment? I'm a irrever- <laughs> I'm a dumb, dumb goofball. And this is not dumb, dumb goofball times. And it just feels like, why am I, why, what is my mission right now? Uh, and it feels, I, I try to give myself the mission of being, of preserving queer history, uh, specifically through sitcoms. And that is what this month is about to me. And honestly, that's what the podcast is about, because Lord knows I talk about gay shit all the time. Um, this podcast is about that. This episode is going to be about that. And I hope that by talking about the important work that queer creators did, you know, in the 20th century, uh, 19th century barely for one of these people um it's some importance it's educational it's an escape it's uh inspirational i hope so yeah i went through every single episode of the podcast i think i've talked about 92 or 93 sitcom episodes of television in the year since this podcast started closing in on 100 gotta figure out what i'm doing for that hold on is that a cat that wants in oh gosh I broke my no-editing rule because Gene needed to be let into my office. And now he's probably going to jump up on my desk and just knock over all my stuff. Um, (laughs) So I went through all, like, 90-something episodes, 92 or 93, of television that I've talked about. And I have done the truly nutso thing but it's very me make made a list of every single director do not jump up here gene this is gonna be fun for y'all to have a little cat co-host his name is gene parmesan and he just wants to get into everything (laughs) i went through and i cataloged all of the directors and writers he's fully on my uh desk now you can sit there buddy and it's fine i went through and cataloged all of the writers and directors of every single episode and then i did the Snoopin', google searchin', imdb searching wikipedia searching uh to find out if they are queer gay bi trans literally any like anything and i mean to be fair uh <laughs> bigoted history it's all gonna be white gay men like it is very hard to find anyone other than that because you know opportunities come towards white men first and then everyone else way 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 way, way later which is bullshit um But I did that, and through all the directors of every single episode, I have found three gay uh, men who directed episodes that I have talked about that I did not talk about um, them being gay in the episode itself, uh, most likely. I might have with one of them. And I just want to go through their biographies and talk about all the cool things that I found out about their lives by, you know, doing extensive google search looking at my own very small library of uh queer sitcom texts i have two books they actually didn't have that much info on these people uh i'm trying okay hold on i'm pausing because i don't know what my cat is doing cats are the real boss so today on must have seen tv we will be talking about tv directors sitcom directors film directors stage directors uh, arthur lubin John Erman and Robert Moore. So first up is Arthur Lubin, who directed uh, episode 44 of this podcast, Mr. Ed's Ed the Beachcomber. Yep. That episode where... Uh, Ethan Kay was my guest and that is the episode that features the famous Mr. Ed catchphrase Ride Me Daddy. <laughs> so that is, the episode aired uh, is season 2 episode 23 of Mr. Ed and it aired on April 1st 1962. Um, Arthur Lubin was born Arthur William Lubowski. Uh, he was born Hello, July 25th, 1898. So being gay is not a 20th century invention. Surprise, historical figures are also gay, including our 15th president, most likely. But that's another project of mine. Uh, He was born in Los Angeles. He died May 12th, 1995 in Glendale, California, under um, potentially wild circumstances that we're going to get to. Note that I have an outline. I have not actually gone through and actually scripted all this out so things could get loosey-goosey as if they haven't already hopefully you're still interested he grew up in jerome arizona but moved to san diego at the age of eight like any gay child he of course performed in sunday school and high school productions i relate hard to that uh, he actually when he moved to San Diego, he got a gig working at the San Diego um, like Stock Repertory Company as a performer, and he worked alongside comedian Harold Lloyd, which is a huge deal. He then went. To, he then went to Carnegie Tech. Uh, he graduated from Carnegie Tech, which is now Carnegie Mellon University. So that's in Pittsburgh, and he acted in movies and on stage in the nineteen twenties. Uh, and this was in L.A. He went out to L.A. and started acting and stuff, and he got some uh, pretty good press in the 20s this is you know before he you know he wasn't uh you know an influencer or chasing instagram likes or nothing but in 1925 the los angeles times called him one of this year's juvenile screen sensations and then another profile the next year called him a genius actor that was human and charming not only good but awfully good looking hello i added the hello so around this time is when he and his friends are actually charged with obscenity by the Los Angeles Police Department for putting up a version of Eugene O'Neill's Desire Under the Elms, which is uh, inspired by Greek tragedies. I tried to find out, like, what the hell... (laughs) Uh, obscene stuff they were doing. Um, I probably could have read the play synopsis on Wikipedia, but it was a long synopsis, and as you'll see, I did a lot of reading for this, and I didn't feel like reading that whole synopsis, so uh, just Google Desire Under Under the Elms. Uh, Arthur then moved back to New York City to direct stage plays in the early 1930s, and then Hollywood called. He kind of like boomeranged right back out to the West Coast, and he got into doing universal pictures movies, which he directed so many movies from 1934 to 1957. And it's kind of because he got the reputation of doing pictures quickly and bringing them on schedule. That is his quote. That's what he said about himself, but the big movies that he did, and this is where, I don't know, I'm going to just call it like, Arthur Lubit is kind of an example of gay excellence in terms of the impact that we have on pop culture that you did not know. Um, first of all, he directed a bunch of small movies. His first bigger one was, in 1940, he directed a movie called Black Friday that starred Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. I do not believe they shared the scene. Uh, even though, come on, that's like the Freddy vs. Jason of 1940. You got Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Um, is that Wolfman and Dracula? I get kind of fuzzy on the Universal monsters. But... Here is what Arthur Lubin gave us to give pop culture Abbott and Costello. He directed the first Abbott and Costello film, Buck Privates, in 1941, and then he directed the next four. He directed the first five Abbott and Costello movies. That is, Buck Buck Privates, In the Navy, Hold That Ghost, Keep Em Flying, and Ride em, Cowboy. I love the title, Hold That Ghost. Uh, the first one was such a huge hit that Universal gave him a $5,000 bonus which if you're wondering what that is in 2020 money, that is $87,000. That is how good, that's how much Universal like loved this game. They gave him 80, 87,000 bucks additional for doing a good work. Um it's at this point that he actually became known as the most commercially successful director in Hollywood. 1941, everyone's like be like Arthur Lubin, the dude is making bank. His Abbott and Costello movies saved Universal from like total ruin and so he let him do whatever he wanted and what did he want to do honey he wanted to direct phantom of the opera (laughs) so of course he did and it was a hit uh and his hits continued until 1946 when a movie called night in paradise uh underperformed universal Universal was like well we're not gonna renew this contract but gays are crafty you uh (laughs) you knock us down we're going to get back up and find out some way to make that money and he bought the rights to Francis the Talking Mule. <laughs> so Arthur Lubin just got done like knocking out of the park with App and Costello and he's like, "You know what my next thing is going to be? Francis the Talking Mule." Boom, it's going to be a franchise. He directed the first 6 of those movies. And then while he's directing the top ta- Francis the Talking Mule franchise, he um so like universal is like shooting at a california um like army base like fort and they just see like this hot six foot four dude and he's like he's like the fort lifeguard he's a hunk and they're like ooh, this guy might be a good actor we should arrange for him to get some screen tests and so they just paired him with arthur lubin who is this actor clint fucking eastwood Arthur Lubin is the guy who first did a screen test with Clint Eastwood. He said, this guy is hot as fuck, which is accurate. And he, but he was like, he can't act. He is a bad actor. So Lubin arranged for him to get acting lessons. And then he put him in multiple movies. Lady Godiva of Comfort lady godiva of coventry and oh yes the fifth the final one <laughs> i think it's the the last uh francis the talking mule movie lubin gave him his first credited brawl in that francis in the navy 1955 so if you want to see eastwood talk to a talking mule instead of a not talking stool watch that movie but uh there was tension tension rose between reportedly and again all this is stuff i googled so like i'm pretty sure it's true like none of this like let's just slap a big ol allegedly on all of this maybe um i will not stand by any of this in court is what i'm saying if the estate of arthur lubin wants to come after me uh with their francis the talking mule money but anyway there's rumors that tension arose between eastwood and lubin because clint eastwood's wife was basically like walked up to Lube and was like, hey, are you trying to steal my husband? (laughs) Um, Which who knows? Who knows if he was? Who knows what their relationship was? I honestly do know, literally, who knows what their relationship was? I don't know. I'm not alleging anything. Um, But yeah, it is. I would like finding those slivers of uh, gay stuff because the thing with just bigger picture about all three of these men is the reason you know they're gay usually is because it just says so on wikipedia like was gay and lived with this man and then you try desperately to find any information on like what was their relationship like how long were they together like what else did they do did they go to parties did they like do anything activism wiser or... and you can't find any of it so like this one exchange between him and uh, eastwood's wife is almost all i have uh it's it's the only like gay anecdote i have other than the fact that he was gay um so then after the whole francis the talking mule thing like died down he tried to get into tv in the early to mid 50s with a bunch of old unsold tv pilots from 53 to 58 including one with mickey rooney he finally got into tv in 1958 by directing multiple episodes of 77 sunset strip the deputy bonanza and then 11 episodes of maverick and then comes A Horse is a Horse, of course, of course. Mr. Ed, which started in 1957. Well, the journey for Mr. Ed started in 1957. So Arthur Lubin wanted to make a Francis the Talking Mule TV show, but he could not figure out the rights for TV. I guess he had the movie rights down, but small screen was a no-go. Arthur's secretary, Sonia Chernis, was basically like, well, here are some short stories about this guy, Walter R. Brooks, about a talking horse. Do you just want to do that? And Arthur was like excellent yes i am back in the animal game (laughs) so he optioned the rights for the talking horse and that is where mr ed comes from he essentially created he created mr ed the tv show um george burns the comedian the comedy legend financed the pilot but lubin couldn't sell it to a network and again scrappy scrappy he was just like well you know what i'm gonna sell it into syndication i got a sponsor i've made 26 episodes and then it was just syndicated across the nation for like all of season one or most of season one until cbs was finally like okay cool we will uh we'll air it and it's gonna be a big hit thanks arthur <laughs> uh all told arthur directed 131 episodes of mr ed of the 143 he was a series producer it lasts from 61 to 66 alan young the uh cutie that played wilbur uh yeah he's i think he's cute um he called arthur a lovable character he called him a lovable character but he was a character um he said that lubin always wanted to rush through things and did not like people cracking jokes on set and wasting time including a quote that alan young quotes of arthur saying stop that stop all this laughing this is comedy there's no time for laughter great icon icon so while mr ebb was going and right after mr ebb was going he directed a couple more uh sitcoms the adams family did an episode did a couple episodes of the phyllis diller show um he also directed the incredible mr limpet the don Knotts movie that's about a fish kind of i don't know anything about mr limpet y'all um Old movies is not my forte. He closed out his career by directing three ABC Weekend specials in 1978 and 1981, the last one being a uh, Little Lulu, I do believe was that. Uh, And that was it. So his death is wild um well i'll just add in here so his partner was a man named frank buford and the only information i can find on frank buford and arthur lubin is that they lived together for many years um i can't find i don't know what frank buford did for a living um google image or google results don't bring back anything a google result for both of their names together just brings back the phrase lived with him for many years so I don't know, we can unsolve mysteries of this. Um, if anyone has any information on Frank Buford, please, please let me know. So fast forward to, when is his death? 1995? Yeah, so 1995. Dude is 97. Wow. So he might be a victim of Efren Saldivar, also known as the Angel of Death. Uh, Efren, when Efren was 19, or maybe you know what, Saldivar, I'm not on a first name basis with this murderer. Um, Saldivar, at the age of 19, got a job as a respiratory therapist uh, working the night shift at the Adventist Medical Center in Glendale. And he just took it upon himself to start mercy killing a bunch of gravely ill hospital patients by lethal injection, which started in 1989. And they did not catch him for a long time. So... He confessed to doing this to dozens of people. They don't have proof for a lot of them. They have not proved that Arthur Lubin is one of them. There is, but it is like he was at that hospital. He died within the time frame, and he was in a coma when he passed. So his family and people were worried that maybe he was one of the victims. (sighs) So that's a bummer. But let's look at the stuff that Arthur Lubin gave to us. He gave us uh, Abbott and He gave to us Clint Eastwood and mr ed like that is absolutely outstanding so uh i salute you arthur lubin uh historical uh gay tv legend (laughs) next up we're going to talk about john ehrman john ehrman directed uh, one of my favorite christmas episodes maybe tv episodes of all time Christmas and the Hard Luck Kid from That Girl, Season One, Episode Sixteen. This was Episode Fifty Five of my podcast. I talked about it with the delightful Paul Montgomery. Please go back and listen to it now because we could use a little Christmas right this very minute. Oh God! Um, the episode aired on December twenty second, nineteen sixty six. The order that I'm talking about these men in is uh, air date order of the episode that they directed. So his aired a couple years after. Uh, Arthur Lupin's episode of Mr. Ed, <laughs> one the one I talked about. He directed almost all of them. <laughs> so, John Ehrman is still alive, uh, which means, I don't know, I should reach out and figure out how to get him on this podcast, maybe? I mean, he is 1935, he is, oh god, 85, so... Who knows if he's up to Zoom. But he was born on August 3rd, 1935 in Chicago. He went to UCLA. Uh, he had a bunch of miscellaneous acting credits in the 1950s, much uh, of small roles, like not even like named roles. He started directing TV in 1963, and he started directing on the two shows that he actually worked, started out working as a production assistant on, which were shows called Stony Burke, and The Outer Limits. So he started on there, worked his way up, like did a lot of behind the scenes stuff and assistant stuff and then he got to direct multiple episodes of both. He directed an episode of The Fugitive. He got into sitcoms in 1965. He directed 12 episodes of My Favorite Martian, which is a show I have not done yet and I should. I've done Monsters, Adam's Family, Bewitched, and I Dream of Genie. I think that is the only one left of the like spooky kooky mid 50s shows. Although I Dream of genie is not spooky but it was very kooky. And then he directed six episodes of a show called Please Don't Eat the Daisies, which I definitely need to see. He started on That Girl uh, halfway through season one. He directed 10 episodes of the show. Like, that's a sizable chunk of season one. He uh, Other directing credits, he directed an episode of Star Trek The Original Series, an episode called The Empath, which might mean something to people that love Star Trek. I'm a Star Wars person. I like Star Trek fine. I don't know The Empath by name. He also directed four episodes of The Flying... Is that... That's annoying, isn't it? Hearing uh, someone drink on a podcast. I'm sorry. Um, but it's been a long day. Uh, he directed four episodes of The Flying Nun, 12 episodes of Peyton Place, and then he directed two episodes of Gomer Pyle USMC with gay actor Jim Neighbors, and then he directed eight episodes of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir* with gay actor Charles Nelson Reilly. So... I, when I'm doing projects like this, I just, I want to psychically project myself back in time and just, like, did they talk to each other? Like, did they know, I mean, like, they knew the other one was gay, but, like, were they ever alone enough, comfortable enough to actually talk about? Was there that type of gay camaraderie that I uh, want in my real life um that most gay men do have? <laughs> um, did they have that? Did they have that on set? Could they have that on set? Like, I... I would love to know that. I would love to know that stuff. Um, in the 70s, he did, he did an episode of MASH. He did one of Bob Newhart's show. But he was really transitioning into, like, more serious fare in the 70s. He did five episodes of Marcus Welby, M.D., and then he got into TV movies. And this is where things go serious for John Ehrman in a, uh, like, in a serious respect way. Uh, he did part two of Roots a little influential uh blockbuster miniseries that you've heard of he did part two of roots and then he did three parts of roots and next generations which aired a couple years after roots mm-hmm. overall he was a 10 time Emmy nominee from 1977 to 1994 uh, he won in 1983 for outstanding directing in a limited series or a special for who will love my children <laughs> that's a very serious title but his main claim to fame like the thing like the reason why he is a massive person to know and to talk about is the TV movie An Early Frost from November 11th, 1985, which was the first film, like the first major film, TV, feature film, any type of film to deal with AIDS. 1985. It was written by gay writers Ron Cowan and Daniel Littman. It's about a Chicago attorney played by Aiden Quinn, very handsome, um, who goes home to tell his family that he's gay and has AIDS. Uh, It was the most watched program of the night, a TV movie about AIDS, starring gay characters written by gay men, directed by a gay man. The sun is now like blinding me right now. Oh my God, I have got to close the window. I really hope that no the slight editing is a charming uh thing i really hope that it makes you feel like you are hanging out with me hanging out with someone because lord knows none of us are hanging out with anyone uh i hope it's more endearing and not just really annoying i am very sorry if that is the case um but anyway yeah this gay movie written by gay writers and directed by a gay director was the most watched program of the night uh he got he also he got the gig because he was gay uh, is gay um he shared an agent with paul newman and the producers so first of all let's just say that the like the the networks and hollywood people the the hollywood straits and the network straits wanted the most star power behind this little aids movie to try to um assuage fears and like counter any backlash that they could so they were like paul newman no one could get mad at paul newman we want him to direct and then his agent was like well he's not gonna direct a tv movie that's not gonna happen but i have another uh client director john Erman. you know he did fucking roots and he was won an emmy a couple years ago he is also gay and will have the right sensibility for this and so he got onto the, he got onto the movie. And even though he wasn't the first choice, he fought like hell to make the thing accurate. He, when the networks were like, we want to cast, like, God, I should have written down the A-list actors. They wanted like, oh, geez like julie andrews like they wanted a a a list actors to play all of these roles and he was like okay cool um this is supposed to be an like average american family it's supposed to like play to the midwest and you're wanting to cast all of these super known he was like you're casting hollywood's version of you know air quote all american family i want to actually cast right the right actors and that's where he got aiden quinn he when he got Aiden Quinn, he actually took Aiden Quinn to a bunch of uh, hospitals to meet AIDS patients and to talk with them. He wanted the movie to be scientifically accurate in its depiction of the AIDS epidemic. And also, the networks wanted Aiden Quinn's character... He wanted the character's lover to be a villain. And Erman was like, absolutely not. We are not going to treat the lover as a bad guy. We're not going to treat any of the gay, gay characters in this movie as bad at all. That is not the point of this. He put his foot down, and he won the fight. Um, since then... He kept directing more TV movies and miniseries. He never went back to doing uh, sitcoms, which is kind of a shame because that That Girl episode is so good. He directed a miniseries in the early 90s called Our Sons, which starred Julie Anders and Hugh Grant, which was also about AIDS. He directed a 1992, I think, miniseries called Queen, which uh, starred Halle Berry. He did one called Scarlet, starring Joanne Whaley and Timothy Dalton. The Sunshine Boys, starring Woody Allen and Peter Falk. Keep that in mind because that's coming up. That's coming background next. Um, The Boys Next Door, starring Ethan Lane. And his final credited work was 2006's Hallmark movie, Candles on Bay Street, starring Alicia Silverstone. And that is John Ehrman. Um, I would love to know more about his. <laughs> This is the word like the like select so, like, i want to know more about his love life like that's not um it's this like thing of uh what directing roots wasn't enough it is enough but it's also like i would i the 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 stories and struggles of what it was like to be a gay man working in hollywood and sitcoms and television from 1963 to 2006 is a story i want to i want told and he's still alive uh i do not maybe i don't know why people aren't writing about that is this me now being like i need to write about this maybe it is i don't know it is uh it's upsetting to me (laughs) talk to gay elders before we lose them because their stories are important and and as you're gonna learn right now um all of our elders are dead most of our elders are dead so i apologize for ending on a down note but we're going to talk about robert more now um i have to take a drink I don't know... Well, I think I know why I have such an affinity for Robert Moore. And I think it's because he is so closely intertwined in the MTM uh, universe and stratosphere. Um, he was involved in Bob Newhart show, Mary Moore show, and Rhoda extensively. And I love those shows. And the fact that they took in a gay genius and, like, let him act and direct on all those shows. Like, it's very special to me. And it just it really makes me uh sad so anyway um he directed of the episodes that i've talked about on the show he directed Rhoda, the Rhoda season premiere the rota series premiere season one episode one titled joe or pilot or pilot joe but joe is not a pilot that is episode 18 of the podcast i talked to elena chomeleski uh well elena soloner nay chomeleski i've never said that nay thing before but that was her um, maiden name or whatever oh no i spelled we're fine episode 18 of the podcast please go back and listen to it it was a true ride because elena had never heard of rhoda before the show and so when i told her halfway through the episode that ultimately joe and rhoda get divorced it like made us have to relitigate the entire episode because it puts everything in a new light it was a lot of fun and also an early episode episode 18. i went if my air conditioning decided to come on just then uh so this episode of tv aired september 9th 1974 so we're getting a little bit later he was born in Detroit on August 7th, 1970. 1970- <laughs> oh my God. He was born in Detroit on August 7th, 1927. And he died on May 10th, 1984 in New York City. Over the course of his career, let's just start off with the big, uh, the big picture. He was nominated for five Tonys. Five Tonys. Didn't win one, but he was nominated for five. Best director, um, 1969. Best director in musical for Promises. Promises. 1970. Best director in play, Last of the Right Hot Lovers. 1978. Best Director to Play, Death Trap, 1979. Best Director, They're Playing Our Song, 1981. Best Director, Woman of the Year. Five, five Tony nominations in three decades. Let's just like top salute. Oh, I forgot to do this for John Ehrman. John Ehrman left us with the notion of AIDS as a narrative device in things and public awareness of AIDS. Like period, full stop. At a time when the president and officials were not talking about AIDS, he was the one striving for accuracy on a primetime TV movie that was watched by a ton of people. So, salute, John Ehrman, gay sitcom legend.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
1: Uh, now Robert Moore, I'm sorry, this is kind of all over the map, but again, like, it's like we're hanging out and I'm having a one-sided conversation with you and you're like, when is it going to be my turn to talk? And I'm like, after I'm done talking about Robert Moore and then I'm going to hit stop and then you can talk. (laughs) Sorry. Um, so again, like any good gay, Robert Moore got into theater in high school. He spent six months in the Navy in 1945 and then went to college. I, I think... Two, also, um, Arthur Lubin did time in the military as well. I'm like, that's a chapter that I, I could not. Um, <laughs> I could not. Uh, just because of multiple, uh, sickness reasons. And also just, I'm a, uh, wimpy coward. Um, he studied at Catholic University of America Drama, drama Department. And at the Catholic University of America Drama Department is where he met mart Crowley. Remember that name, because it is going to be major in, like, just a little bit. His first play that he performed in was in 1948. He had a role in Gene Kerr's Ginny Kissed Me. The play closed after three weeks. He then worked as a typist in the United Nations clerical pool, which seems really cool. I don't know. It just seems cool <laughs> to be like a... I'm just picturing, like, a madman typist scenario, but it's, like, at the United Nations, and he's, like, this young gay guy, and <laughs> amongst all these you know they're definitely rad 1950s ladies um in the mid 50s he went back to his alma mater and started uh, directing summer productions and that expanded to him directing a lot of local theater plays in maryland and vermont throughout the 50s and 60s so that's like a lot of experience he had before he went to new york and directed in 1968 the off-broadway play the boys in the band which changed pop culture uh period um it was written by gay writer mark crowley who was also his classmate at the catholic university so kudos to that um catholic university for uh giving us all these legendary gays so here's a little anecdote and this is going to include a gay slur that i don't like using but i will use it because it is in the quote and also i am gay and i can say it and you can't if you are not Um, Crowley was worried that it wouldn't be funny to audiences and Moore replied, they've been laughing at faggots since Aristophanes. They're not going to stop now. That's another one of those like little tinges of gay personality that I long to find in these deep Google searches where everything is so clinical and it's just like X was gay or, you know, X never married. Uh, X was rumored and there's never any flair or personality or like any hint into the actual queer life that they led. And that quote is so catty and so offensive that it, 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 it colors Robert Moore a lot that I find delightful. And I am sorry if the use of that F word, uh, is offensive. It offends me. Um, I don't like, definitely don't like, uh, straight people. I don't care if you were called it in high school. You don't own that word and you can't say it. Uh, Around me, at least. That is my firm belief. (sighs) I'm sorry. Uh, No, I'm not. (laughs) So anyway, Boys in the Band was about a group of gay men attending a birthday party in New York City. And this is 1968. This is before Stonewall. This play ran before, during, and after Stonewall. So the fact that there was an off-Broadway play, again, written by a gay man, starring mostly gay men and directed by a gay man, about gay men, is truly wild it's so crazy to think about and it was a hit like people loved it uh i think this is like jackie onassis came like it was a big deal for being an off-broadway play it was also and other queer writers have said that the boys in the band was the first time that gay people in new york city saw themselves period they saw themselves Predicted with, uh, portrayed with nuance and strength in a way that inspired them and was kind of like, oh, wait a second, we can be the protagonists in a thing. That's wild. So the point of contention comes in the fact that he did not direct the movie. A movie ad- adaptation came in 1970, uh, which is kind of, I don't know, it sucks that he didn't direct, didn't direct the movie because he won the Drama Desk Award for directing the play. So He did a good job. Um, The movie was directed by William William Friedkin, who, you know, directed The French Connection and The Exorcist, and also Cruising, which is... I've not seen Cruising, but I understand it's not the best depiction of gay life in 1980. So here is what a cast member... One of the cast members of Boys in the Band was interviewed for a book uh, in the 80s, and he said that Moore was... Robert Moore was too out. He was too gay. Everyone in Hollywood knew that he was gay. Like, he wasn't really in the closet. And so Hollywood wanted a straight-seeming director. They just preferred to hear what Combs uh, had to say. They preferred straight-seeming directors. So, Moore was passed up. They went with William Friedkin. Um, He also... uh, Combs also said that Moore wanted to be a star, and he tried to downplay how gay he was by making a bunch of gay jokes. Which, you know, that quote I found kind of... uh, Kind of uh, leads into that. So in 1968, he also directed Jerry Orbach in Promises, Promises. In 1969, he directed Doris Roberts, Dom DeLuise, and Rita Moreno in Last of the Red Hot Lovers. And by this time, he had three different plays. Boys in the Band, Promises, Promises, and Last of the Red Hot Lovers. All running in New York City simultaneously. Spoiler alert, this is not the last time that's going to happen for him. Because Duob was prolific and talented. In 1970, he, uh, kickstarted his own acting career. He acted in the feature film called Tell Me That You Love Me, Junie Moon. Uh, Liza Minnelli was the lead and Robert Moore played a paraplegic gay man and it was not a good movie. Uh, everything I found about it is like not good depictions of, um, disability, mental illness, gay people. It's just kind of a wreck and it was panned and did not do well. But he, this gave Robert Moore Experience that he desperately wanted. It was directed by Otto Preminger. You might know him as Mr. Freeze from Batman. That's how I know him, because I'm basic. He basically begged Otto Preminger, like, I want a small role in this movie because I want to watch you work. I want to watch how a film director works because he wanted to learn how to direct movies. And he got that. So, like, and as we're about to find out, it paid off. In 1973, his acting career continued in... Uh, an episode of television that is very important to me in 1973 he, in january 73 he played phyllis's gay brother ben in the season three episode my brother's keeper of the mary teller moore show which is an episode that was co-written by dick Claire and jenna mcmahon dick Claire gay writer uh robert moore gay actor playing a gay character and it is one of the most one of the first also um it might only be the second episode gay character on a sitcom. The first is an all-in-the-family, and then the second might be Mary Teller Moore. It might be Ben. I have a database. (laughs) Um I have one. Uh but so that's that's just wild. And that episode is beautiful and his the and and it is one of the things of like gay characters in the 70s and 80s usually have like a quiet dignity, (laughs) which is kind of boring. But I really like uh, Ben. I wish that he had been a part of Phyllis's solo show. Um, I wish that he'd come back. I wish that he'd done more. But as we're going to see, Robert Moore had a lot going on behind the scenes. After that episode of Mary Teller Moore Show, he gets cast as a series regular on Diana Riggs' short-lived sitcom Diana. I want to see this. Where is this? <laughs> he also directed two episodes of the of the show, which I think that's like the first time he directed. Um, Television, I'm pretty sure. Um, in 1974, he directed Bob Newhart and Gene Wilder in the TV movie Thursday's Game, which, I keep saying this over and over again, is a thing I need to see. I have scoped out uh, DVD and like VHS copies. I will find one, and I will watch it eventually. Hot off of directing Thursday's Game, he directed the season three premiere of The Bob Newhart Show, which is Big Brother is Watching, which is a great episode, where Howard starts dating Bob's sister Emily. I love the... No, God, Bob's sister Ellen. Oh boy, that'd be a wild thing of Howard started dating Emily. Bob, uh, Howard starts dating Ellen and I love Howard and Ellen together and I wish they had stayed together. This is where he gets into the MTM family. He directs three episodes of Paul Sand in Friends and Lovers, which is a show that I feel like I've talked about a lot on this podcast as an oddity <laughs> <laughs> because it's a very clunky name. No wonder it did not last long. But then he goes on to direct 26 episodes of Rhoda over the first two seasons, which includes the pilot that I talked about on the show. Also, Rhoda's Wedding, which was like the biggest episode of television of all time. At that time, he directed it. A gay man directed that episode. And then he also had bit acting parts in an episode in season one and an episode in season two. And then he moved on to a killer uh directing career in 1976 he directed a tv movie adaptation of cat on the hot tin roof which starred my problematic heartthrob robert wagner natalie wood laurence olivier and maureen stapleton also that year he began a very honestly he might have already started this The dates might not be lining up correctly, but he started working with Neil Simon a whole lot. He directed three feature film adaptations of Neil Simon Plays, Murder by Death in 1976, The Sunshine Boys in 1977, which starred Red Buttons and Lionel Stander. If you flash back, John Ehrman also directed a TV movie of The Sunshine Boys. So, Sunshine Boys... Is it gay canon? I don't know. Um, 1978, he directed The Cheap Detective, and in 1979, he directed Chapter Two. These were all feature films and TV movies. He did all of that. This is also the time when he got his second New York City Theater hat trick. Um, in 1978, he directed Death Trap, started running. 1979, he directed They're Playing Our Song. That started running. Then, 1981, woman of the year directed that that started running at this point death trap they're playing our song and woman of the year we're all running at the exact same time his second time of having three plays running at the same time in new york city wild um also at this time from what i found i found this very frustrating uh passage of a uh, gay hollywood book that for some reason, there's a thing called Google Books, and they just have books online for free, and they pop up in Google searches, and it feels illegal. Um, it's very helpful. It's where I get a lot of this information from. I do feel bad that, like, those books are just scanned and put on Google. I feel like there has... I don't know. I don't know what's going on over there. But there's one, and they... The passage is about the boys in the band, and they... The author talks about how, like, I called Robert Bohr and I wanted to talk about boys in the band. He they, And they he says, like... He made it clear he didn't really want to talk about the boys in the band. So I made the conversation short, which just frustrates me so much to be like, you had this man on the phone and you didn't want to ask him about anything else. Cool. Like it would, <laughs> I just want to know more. And the thing that the author says though, that I'm putting in here is that um, at this time in the early eighties, Robert Moore was partnered and closeted. Like, you know, he wasn't talking about being gay, uh, even though everyone knew he was gay. Which I'm sure is similar to the same deal that Charles Nelson Reilly and Paul Lynde and uh, I would have had if I'd been alive back then. Um, but like, <laughs> partnered, he was partnered. I want. Who was his partner? What were they doing? Like, is his partner still alive? Does his partner pass? Like, I, these are things I want to know that we will never know, and it is just so frustrating that. All these little pieces of history are gone. Uh, so in the fall of 1983, he got his last gig that I saw um, directing the pilot of the short-lived sitcom It's Not Easy, which starred Carlene Watkins, uh, who played Bob Newhart's wife in the 90s sitcom Bob for one and a half seasons, and Burt Convey, game show host. So that's fall of 83. And then uh, on May 10th, 1984, Robert Moore died of AIDS-related pneumonia. Then after that, five actors from the boys in the band died of AIDS, including and also the producer. On June 3rd, 1986, Robert Latourneau died of AIDS-related illnesses. On August 24th, 1988, Leonard Frey died of AIDS-related illness. On January 9th, 1989, producer Richard Barr died of AIDS-related liver failure On September 19th, 1992, Frederick Combs died of AIDS-related illnesses. On September 27th, 1992, Keith Prentiss died of AIDS-related cancer. And October 7th, 1993, Kenneth Nelson died of AIDS-related illnesses. The Boys in the Band, the quite possibly the first piece of gay pop culture by gay creators starring mostly gay people for gay audiences about gay life was ravaged by AIDS. The director died, the producer died, five of the actors died, all by 93. Between 84 and 93, Robert was the first. And he was the only one to have a career after Boys in the Band, really. And that's the bummer note that I end on, but that is the thing that I keep finding every time I do one of these podcasts or one of these articles I write or any research I dive into. Um... AIDS just took uh, generations from the gay community and it robbed us of all the art, all the things that Robert Moore was going to direct star in, took it from us, Uh, especially, you know, Robert, Leonard, Richard, Frederick, Keith, Kenneth, gone. And that is why this month is important. And that's why these stories are important is because, you know, these aren't the, you know, we all know the Lucille ball stories. We all know the you know, grant Tinker. We know who he is. We know, uh, you know, we know Glenn and Les Charles. Like there are, you know, these icons that we know be because I don't know because they were straight and they were allowed to have a longer career. They weren't taken from us by a disease. Um, we're allowed to know all about like their personal lives. Like, you know, stars. <laughs> Learn about their personal lives. And so we don't know about those, about the gay people. Thankfully, it has changed. It's, on, it's gotten better. And I like using this podcast as a platform to talk about these people. Maybe I shouldn't have ended with this one. But there's sadness in all of them. So Robert Moore gave us... One of the first ever gay sitcom characters ever. The first played by a gay man. So, therefore, one of the most realistic ones. He gave us Rhoda. He gave us Rhoda's wedding. He gave us the boys in the band, which inspired so much art that's come since. And that, uh, that's it. Hey, Robert Moore. John Ehrman, Arthur Lubin, three gay sitcom directors who were so much more than sitcom directors, but those episodes of television, that Rotopilot, all of Mr. Ed, almost, that girl's Christmas episode stand as some of the most endearing parts of pop culture and a foundation of like TV history stuff and it was done by gay men who weren't allowed to be out weren't allowed to love publicly um endured worked their hardest and committed and created things that have lasted so you know know their names um and happy pride Uh, next week on the podcast, I will be talking to Justin Kirkland of the podcast, My Year with Dolly, and we'll be talking about the Roseanne episode, Dances with Darlene. So, uh, get ready for that. It is going to be fun. And, um, I remind everyone also to please go to bailfunds.github.io and find, uh, bail funds like close to you or not close to you um and donate money right now to people that need it to demonstrators and protesters and people that are honestly fighting for the soul of america right now and need your attention and your money and i hope that this was a good oh boy 55 ish minutes of entertainment that got really sad at the end uh but hey it's welcome to 2020 um I I I hope this was tolerable. I am very anxious about things like this and talking about very serious things. <laughs> I hide behind a lot of bluster and bravado. Uh it's if you could see my face, it's a lot of affectation. Uh hiding a lot of sincere uh Pain and need. Uh, is that too much information? So, anyway, um, please rate and review the show on iTunes. Uh, um, follow on social media. I honestly do not know how active the social medias are going to be because it doesn't, I don't know how right it feels. I don't know. You know, it's, we're in a very weird, scary time. All I can guarantee is that the podcast is not going to go anywhere. And I hope that it remains a way (laughs) to get your mind off. And I guess this month, think about other horrible things that are punctuated with fun, hopefully punctuated with fun. Um, But yeah, anyway, thank everyone so much for listening. It does mean a lot to me to have this outlet that y'all have afforded me and an audience that I uh, greatly uh, respect and appreciate um, as glib and and self-deprecating as I may be. I hope you're enjoying this, and I will see y'all next time for more Must Have Pride Month on Must Have Seen TV.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig.